Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back to episode 648, Reaching the Unreachable. It was first published on April 21st, 2011. So we're, we're back a ways here, but we're at least at studio quality with the old audio. Uh, this one got done because, especially at this time, it seemed like every other day I was getting an email from people that said something like, my blank just doesn't get it, and I have tried explaining blank and blank and blank, and they still don't think there's any reason to have a preparedness plan. Uh, what can I say to reach them? And I, I know that it's like easy to write people off. It really is, but... Um, You, you, when these people are writing me, they're not talking about Joe Blow at work. They're talking about a brother or a sister. And a lot of times, even today, I'm still getting stuff where it's, I'm trying to get through this person because they live where there's lots of tornadoes. I'm trying to get through this person because they live where there's flooding risk. I'm trying to get, so it's like, it's not just, you know, I want them to be prepared in case there's an economic collapse. A lot of times I'm getting these emails with, with a very specific reason that the person they're concerned for um, should be prepared, not just a general uh, thing. And it is difficult a lot of times to reach people. And as we go through this old material, here, here's some things to kind of think about in the beginning as to why that's the case. Number one is perception and confirmation bias, and we're all guilty of this. And You can't see a more clear example of this than in the political spectrum. Uh, if you look at the political spectrum today, when somebody puts out a piece of information, and I don't care if it's, it's something that's beneficial to the left or beneficial to the right, when it is absolutely false, like it's just so not true, and it's, it's, it's demonstratively not true. It's not an opinion. It's this person said this thing in this magazine on this day, and you can pull up the results of what that magazine published in that particular time, And there's no mention of the person whatsoever in it. It's not even a misconstrued quote. They just this this issue of Time Magazine had no inclusion of this person, or you know uh, this person. Uh, here's a classic example. It's an old one. It still comes back around. I don't know why people are still digging it up. There's a picture of Barack Obama, and it looks like he's not got his hand over his heart while the Star Spangled Banner is playing, and other people do. Well, when you look it up. It turns out that, and here's the thing, I'm not defending Obama, and that's how people get into this confirmation bias thing. But you, when you look it up, you find out that at the time that picture was taken, the band was not playing the Star Spangled Banner. They were playing a song for him that they always play for the president called Hail to the Chief. And it would be completely wrong of him to be standing there with his hand. I mean, it's... You understand that, right? So then you, you point this out, and you say, look, here is demonstrable proof that this didn't happen. And the person that made the claim will double down on it. They'll call you a libtard, or you know, they'll say you're an ignorant Republican if it's on the other direction, and you're correcting misinformation. Now, how does that apply to people not being willing to prepare? It's the same phenomenon. It really is. It's... I don't believe that I'm under any threat because that makes me feel comfortable. 
Your words make me feel uncomfortable. I don't like that, so I will reach for things that confirm my perception. And it's the, it's the same in politics as it is in life, as it is with money, etc. It's the same phenomenon when you try to talk to somebody who has a spending problem and a debt problem with money. And you say, look, you know, if you continue to do this, you're going to still be paying on credit cards when you're 70. You're not going to have the money to do it then. All kinds of things could go wrong in between. And they'll give you a million reasons why they don't need to worry about it. Now, they know. They know deep in their heart and soul, not even that deep, but they know way down deep and up top too, that you're right. They know you're right. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to face it. They're not ready to deal with the situation yet. Which means that all the stuff you're going to hear today is much better applied in marketing. It's something we call a drip campaign rather than a show up and throw up. So <clears throat> effective sales might work with a drip campaign as well. So if you're a client of mine and I want to get you on board with using my product and you're really not interested yet, well, I might give you a little email one day that says, hey, you know, I know you're working on this and we have some things that could help with that. Uh, here's one example. And that whole thing should be something that could be taken in in less than a minute and understood. So you read it. You don't really care right now, but you delete it. And I reach out to you a little bit later and say, hey, I've, I've been paying attention to what you guys are working on and... Uh, this particular issue that you guys are having, I have a solution that might work with that. And you're like, well, maybe he can help me. And then a week later, I'm like, you know, I'm going to be in town. Uh, I don't have a lot of space open on my calendar, but I could stop by if, if you would like to hear a little bit more about what we do. And so by the time I show up and you actually have had a, an issue with a supplier, a vendor, a technology, something like that, and I walk in the door... And I'm not pushing at this point. I'm just like, so let me understand exactly, like, is this that I perceive to be the way? Okay, well, this stuff here, here's how this stuff could address that. Um, you know, we could set you up with a demo. Um, what, what do we need to do to give you guys an, an opportunity to check this out and see if it'll work for you? And at that point, it's pretty easy if I have a good fit. And it's not the exact same thing as getting your brother, your cousin, your uncle, or your uncle's former roommate or whatever to, to do this, but it has to be the same approach. If you push really hard, you will drive a person that, that is potentially going to listen to you so far away from you they won't listen to you. This is it's classic evangelism. The, you know, when you don't want to hear it from somebody and they keep telling you, we're going to tell you the good news and they won't go away, and you're closing the door on them and they're looking in the window through, you know, with their hand up so they can get the glare out. You're not going to talk to those people. And if they come back, you're never going to listen to them again. Even if you agree with them, you just don't want to hear from people that are pushing that hard. It's like finding a dog. You find a stray dog and it's scared and it's hungry and he's water and food. And you make it easy for the dog to say no, but you offer food and water. The dog will probably be very apprehensive at first, but hunger and thirst will win the day, and it'll begin to eat. And if you can get that dog into a place where you have some level of control, but it doesn't feel cornered, and you continue to feed it and give it water, even some of the worst, you know, fear-ridden and somewhat aggressive strays will often, once they realize this being 
is providing me food and water and not pressuring me. They'll kind of come to you, and you can take that dog and turn that dog completely around. They become some of the best, most wonderful companion animals you could ever have because they know you saved their life. They know it. Now, imagine the same thing. You get the dog. You snatch him up against his will, you know, put something on him so he can't bite you, muzzle him, take him home, put him in a corner in a small room. Then you get a bowl of food and water and you shove it in his face. You're probably going to get the shit bit out of you because you've made it difficult to say no. Dogs, people, any anything knows when you're pushing really hard, something's wrong here. you got to take the approach of if it was a gold rush, You don't beg somebody to come with you. You grab your shit and you head out to go get your gold and say, hey, I'm going this way. And every once in a while you come back, look at that nugget I found. I'm going back to what I'm doing. See, that's the approach that has to be taken with all of the information compiled in this episode. With that, here we go all the way back once again to episode 648, Reaching the Unreachable, first published in April 21st. 2011, and as always, TSP Rewinds are commercial-free, but you can always support the show and the work that we do in a completely painless manner by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. All right, so if you're listening to this recording, you're either a daily listener to my podcast or you're somebody that maybe someone else wants to just kind of wake up a little bit to the reality of the world that we live in. And maybe they came to you with some type of message about prepping or survival or, you know, worried about certain things going wrong in the world. And there's a natural tendency in the human, uh, the human being to resist this information. And what I want to say before I get into anything right off is if you think that you're going to hear today about black helicopters or you're going to hear about uh, a million different conspiracy theories or you're going to hear about how someone's going to come and get you, forget it. It's not going to happen. So hopefully that will put you at ease right away. And we're going to talk about the fact that what we call prepping or being prepared or being a modern survivalist is not the way the, the media paints it. It's not the way that you see it on TV or read about it on the Internet or some of these you know, really out there third rail you know, uh, conspiracy sites or any stuff like that. It's actually a very normal human, human activity. It, it's something that people have done for 10,000 years. In other words, I have 10,000 years of proof that being a prepper and being prepared for things to go wrong is a good idea. And we have about 150 years of society ignoring that, and we have the results of them ignoring that. The, the results of those types of things are people standing on rooftops waiting for a rescue. Uh, people that lose a job going hungry two weeks later. Very, very basic things, whether it's a natural disaster, whether it's a, a common individual disaster. To, to really understand why we need to prep, the first thing that I really need to talk to you about is the, the concept that disasters come in many shapes and sizes, and we see the big ones on TV, like the tsunami hitting Japan, and then everybody panics, and being prepared is cool for like a week or two, and they're still dealing with a major disaster over there. But let's face it, most of America has already forgotten about it. And in some ways, that may be good, because the hysteria that is built up around disasters like that is counterproductive to getting people into the right mindset long term. So that's what we see, and that's what we think of. And there's a tendency, if we've never been in the middle of one, you know, it was about, in 1999, there was a huge tornado 
uh, that hit the Dallas-Fort Worth area, that, that hit houses that were less than a quarter mile away from my home. And some of the houses that were hit were literally leveled to the foundation. That kind of wakes you up. Right, But if you haven't been that close to or been that directly affected by, it's easy to look at TV and see things that happen like in Greens Greensburg, Kansas, where the whole town got wiped out. If you live in Florida, that seems so far away. You know, and it, 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 you can look at things like the earthquakes that happened in Los Angeles uh, in, in the early 90s or, or Hurricane Andrew in South Florida or Hurricane Katrina in, uh, in New Orleans. And if you're anywhere but those places, and the disasters overseas, uh, the Haitian earthquake, all of these different things, as long as you're somewhere else, it's easy to just think of that stuff as far away. Well, when I first started doing the survival podcast and bringing this message that prepping was a normal, sane human thing to do, um, it, I, I had to figure out a way to like condense it into an easy-understand methodology. And what I came up with was is what I call an inverse relationship between probability and impact. And what I mean by that, it sounds complicated, but it's really simple. The less number of people affected by a disaster, the higher the probability is that it's going to happen to you. So we might see a massive earthquake in Japan, but the odds of that affecting you here in the United States are relatively low, despite the hysteria on the TV when it first happened. Tsunamis were going to wipe out California, and we were all going to die of radiation. It just isn't happening. Um, but it affected a large number of people in Japan, and I don't mean to downplay their plight. I think we should do everything we can to help them. But if we look at the total global population versus the number of people affected directly by this disaster, it's relatively low. And let's face it, uh, nuclear plants have, have had very few meltdowns. There's been three uh, in, in decades upon decades. And unless you live on a fault line near the ocean on an island nation, uh, you're not likely to experience something akin to what happened to uh, the Japanese. But every day... Every day, thousands, and some days tens of thousands of people on really bad days lose a job or lose a loved one. And these are disasters too. And they only affect one person. So when your neighbor loses his job, it might not even affect you. Now, if he loses his house and it goes on the market and he has to sell in desperation, it might drive your property price down. But then even unless you're selling right away, it doesn't really affect you. And the way we live today, most people don't even know their neighbor lost a job until the guy moves. Because they, they live next door to people that they never talk to. But these are the things that can impact you individually. And as we scale up from there, we move to things like tornadic storms and things like that, or blizzards and ice storms that hit relatively small geographic areas in the most severe states. So even when there's a big widespread ice storm, there's generally some segment of a state or a place where it hits it more heavily where the flooding is felt harder or the, the power stays out longer. But guess what? You're far more likely to impact, have that impact your life than, let's say, have the entire global currency solution go into meltdown and have a global Great Depression. Right? It's not that that other thing can't happen. It's that you're far more likely to have this thing that affects you and your neighbors happen. And as we keep going up the impact scale and we have more and more people affected, the likelihood that the individual is going to ever experience it in their lifetime, a global disaster, Yellowstone has a huge volcano underneath it with a caldera the size of Rhode Island. If that goes off, it's bad news for the entire world. Impact, huge. Probability, very low. Right? I mean, there is the realistic concept that someday we could all be sitting here happily on Earth and a giant comet or asteroid comes in with a dinosaur killer effect. It's possible. It's happened before. We know it has. We can see the evidence. Probability low, impact scale high. So to make the case to the general public that 
You need to be prepared. You can't sit around and talk about global pandemics and asteroids and conspiracy theories and all this other stuff. You have to talk to them about the things that they're actually likely to experience. And then what you find out is due to what's called the commonality of disaster, that the same things we do to prepare for the mundane disaster are the same things we do to prepare for the extreme disaster. So even something like a job loss, if you have a job loss and you've stored up extra food, guess what? You don't have to go to the grocery store until you find a new job. And you, you know the main thing that people say about why do you work? If you ask a guy that hates his job, why do you work? And he's got a family, you know what he's going to say? There's two things he's going to say. I have to keep what? A roof over my head and food on the table. Well, with some reserve cash, we can keep the roof on the head, overhead, you know, until, we, until dad finds a new job or mom finds a new job. And with some reserved food, guess what? We can keep food on the table. Now, does that mean if you lose a job tomorrow, you're going to be eating MREs on Wednesday or something like that? No, because the first thing that we're going to do when it comes to storing our food is eating what we store and storing what we eat. So what that means is that we're not going to be sitting here sitting on 25 cases of horrible-tasting MREs, even though some of them are actually quite good. Um, it means that we're not necessarily going to be sitting on a massive quantity of long-term storage food from a company like Mountain House or Providing Pantry or Thrive or somebody like that. It means that all we're going to do is we're going to start doing very simple steps. We go to the store, and there's a particular canned good that we always eat. We get a can, of, a can of that every week, and we put it back in our pantry. Well, next time we go to the store, we're going to buy two cans. And if we get a coupon for it or it's on special, we're going to buy three or four. And every time we use a can and we put it back on the, on the list, we're going to go back and buy at least two cans until we have you know, maybe a month supply or two months or three months supply. We use one a week, right? And we have 12 cans. Right? Then we have a, a three-month supply of that particular item. And we can keep doing this with each, you know, maybe it's two or three items at a time until we build up enough and then we move to a different item. And in almost no time at all, we have a very deep pantry. We have the ability to have maybe three months of the foods that we're using as long-term storage foods on hand. But, you know, that doesn't mean that we have three months worth of steak and chicken and things like that. So when we actually condense it back down, we have maybe 30 to 45 days worth of food. Well, guess what? 30 to 45 days of food on the table takes a lot of pressure off someone that just lost a job and, and finding something new. So something even that mundane, the same thing that we would want for a major long-term disaster, like the most realistic thing that I can tell you today that's, that's going to put the potential for you have to hunker down either at home or somewhere else and wait it out and be there for more than a month is a pandemic which is when somebody gets the flu or some other disease and it mutates in a certain way and it becomes easily transmitted from one human to another and it has a high lethality rate, an epidemic on a global scale. We've had some close calls recently. They've, they've overhyped it and they've oversold it to you. In fact, when the, when the, the swine flu thing came out, if you weren't listening to the show back then, I told my listeners when it first hit, I don't know. Within three to four days, I said, this is bullshit. You have to stop being afraid of this. You have to go back to doing what you've always done. They're overhyping it, and they're going to overhype it for a month or two, and then it's just going to go away. And that's exactly what happened. And my big statement was, the problem with this stuff, when every politician comes out and tells you to wash your hands and sneeze into your, your elbow, and everybody makes a big deal and they shut down public events, is it puts people into that you know little boy that cried wolf syndrome where we're going to stop believing that one can happen, but it has happened. Um, there, there were millions of people died around 1917, 1918, 1919 from the Spanish flu epidemic. 
And that was just, you know, the most recent one that was very, very large. There were two more, one in the 50s and 60s, that didn't hit America quite as hard because of better sanitation, better medical care. But the reality is that there are things out there that have mortality rates of 50 to 70%. And the only thing that saved us from them so far is they don't transmit well from one human to another. And we really need to think about uh, the impact of something like that If it, if it ever actually occurs, it, it's something that really um, could cause undue, unbelievable harm uh, to the society. And the only thing we could do in that situation is go into an imposed quarantine. So today's show is not about all the really, really, really bad things that can happen, like pandemics. But I want to bring a little bit of realism into your life, that some of these things that are bigger in scope can occur, But I want to tie it back to something simple is you get a phone call today on your way and you're just about to leave the house and the cell phone rings or the house phone rings and you hear, hi, John, uh, this is your boss and um, uh, you don't need to come in today and uh, Friday you can come in and see HR. I, I just want to let you know right away, I feel bad about this, but we're laying people off. And a week into that, your wife comes home and goes, honey, I got bad news. I, I just lost my job too. And that's happened to nine million people last year. Nine million people had some similar form of that experience. One or both spouses losing their jobs and then looking at their home and going, how do we afford this? And then that led to all these other things, these meltdowns of the mortgage sector and everything else. People borrowing money they couldn't and all these types of things. So there's a ton of things that, that we can talk about doing to prepare But I still want to focus today more on why to prepare. And my show is available at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Whoever gave you this recording, if, you, if you've gotten it from somebody else, can direct you there. There's tons of shows on how to get started. Focusing on the why, though, and, and the, the things that we really need to understand is what I want to do today. First of all, though, I do want you to understand that there are two things that we need to really think about when it comes down to being prepared and those are food and water and and water is, is is difficult in some ways because it's bulky and heavy and you can only store so much of it but it's easy in others because it's actually so plentiful in the world and especially in the United States and as long as we have a way to purify water like a good water filtration system uh, we can pretty much get by in most of the country some of you guys in the desert maybe take some additional steps Food, though, is fundamental to our needs. It's the reason we have the statement of putting food on the table. And I want you to think about if you have anybody in your household that you care about, telling them there's no food to eat today. You'll have to wait till tomorrow and see if you can get some. I want you to get in touch with the emotion of that. Or I want you to get in touch with the emotion of everybody's had something to eat, but they're still very, very hungry because you have to ration your food because you're either out of money or can't leave. And looking at your children and saying, that's going to have to be enough today. And I'm not saying we should be stuffing our kids so they all turn fat like we have this obesity epidemic in, 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 you know, in America. But I'm talking about you, 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 your family has had maybe a meal today uh, that's totaled for the total day about 800 calories, and they should be eating between 1,300 and 2,000 or more, depending on their big people with a heavy job demand. And you can't have anymore. And you're legitimately hungry. Most Americans don't even know what it's like to be hungry. And if, if the fact that you would be hungry doesn't move you, what if somebody that you care about is hungry? Your kids, your wife, your, your, your husband. I want you to think about that. Food is absolutely fundamental. And it's why prepping is a human thing. 
for a you know until 120 years ago maybe at the most, everybody in the world stored food. Nobody lived day to day on their food. The thing is, the threats are real to our on-demand lifestyle. We live in a world today where some people literally don't even have anything in their refrigerator. They pick something up for dinner every night on the way home, be it fast food, stopping at a restaurant, or stopping at a grocery store, and then coming home and fixing it themselves. They couldn't go a week. They couldn't go a couple days. And I know you might be thinking, well, those people are retarded. I don't do that. Hell, we could go a week or two. But what if you had to go longer? How many people in, in this country today have been out of work for 99 weeks? And I wonder how many of those people, if they were in the right state of mind at the time they lost their job and they were in a statement, they were in a, an empowered state, they were able to go out and just be empowered and say, I need another job. I'm going to go find another job. When they talked to an employer, they weren't groveling or begging for a job. They were basically saying, I'm qualified. Give me the job. See, when you've just lost a job, you're highly marketable. Every week you spend looking for a job, your marketability goes down, just like a house. When a house first goes on the market, if you do everything right, set the price right, do the marketing right, everything, that house should sell quickly. If that house, even if everything is tuned up and made right, but it's been on the market for six months, you're better off delisting it for a week or two and then relisting it. Because as soon as somebody sees the shelf life, they think something's wrong here. And they either come in with a lowball offer or they don't want it. Even if everything's right. And that's what happens to a lot of people that have been unemployed for a long time. So if they went out with that aggressive attitude because I'm going to put food on the table, the roof is going to stay overhead, the kids are going to be fine, we've got some reserves, we're low on debt, we're ready to go, most of these people would have been able to find something. The problem is they were out in a panic state. It's very difficult to convince somebody you're the right person for the job when you are in a panic state. Even if you try to act your way through it, people read you. People that interview for a living, they know panic when they see it. And they don't know why the panic's there. If it's just because you lost a job, we'll get by that. But if they see that and sense that and feel that something's wrong, and then someone else walks in with that confident swagger, guess who they're going to hire? Even if you are a slightly more qualified candidate. As long as the other person is actually qualified, I'm going to go with the confident person that I believe can do the job long term for me. This is the way all of these things mesh together. I also want you to understand that prepping is not running away. It's the exact opposite thing. I think so many people, when they hear survivalism, prepping, etc., think, oh, that's running off to the mountains. No, prepping allows you to stand firm. If everything I've said to you today so far should back that up. If we're in the middle of a disaster, but it's not a life-threatening disaster for me, and, and we're prepared to deal with that disaster... Those of, around me, my community, my family, the other people around me who have fallen down in the disaster, I'm there to help them pick it up. If I'm not prepared, I'm standing in line with them to wait for supplies. If I am prepared, I'm standing at the head of the line helping others hand out supplies. If you care about your family, your community, your society, where do you want to be? At the back of the line or the front of the line? At the receiving end or at the giving end? Prepping allows you to, to be on the giving end. That doesn't mean you never leave. If you're sitting in your home and there's about to be a Class 5 hurricane hitting your shores and you live two miles from shore, get the hell out. But a lot of times disasters don't come with those telegraphed punches. 
I, I think that everybody that's listening to the show that's part of a church should be taking the message of preparedness into your churches. I'm not a religious man, but I have great respect for the churches and the work that they do. And if you want, you know, if you're in church, it's all about, you know, let's take care of our, 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 our church members and reach out to others and be charitable. And when someone in the church falls down, let's lift them up. Well, a, a, a congregation of people that are prepared are so much better able to do that than a congregation of people that are living as an on-demand society. It's so much easier to be charitable if you can afford to go without something. The person that's sitting there at the edge of their limitations just can't give even when they want to. Prepping makes you a more charitable person. It's not running away. It's standing and fighting smartly. Because there's battles you can't win. And one of the first rules of war is never fight a battle you're going to lose. If you know going in you're going to lose, retreat, flank, change the situation. But when you can win, stand and fight. And stand and fight smart. Prepping lets you do that. I also want you to understand something. Smart prepping has no downside. There's, there's no downside to being prepared. There's no downside to having three months worth of food in your home. It's like having your own convenience store. You're never running to the neighbor going, hey, do you have some eggs? I know I want to make a cake for the kid, and I don't have any eggs. You bust open a can of powdered eggs, and you make your cake. Or you go out to your, your little laying hens, and you pick up some eggs. Or however you've created that redundancy. See, that's the big thing. It's all up to you. Some of you will live in a place or just say, I don't ever want to have a chicken, so you'll never have that. An egg only stays so long in one of those little styrofoam cartons. So there's other ways to compensate for that. But however you've chosen to do it, if you have three months' worth of supplies, you fall back to them, whether it's a disaster or just a convenience thing. One of the big things we talk about is staying the hell out of debt. And if you're in debt, getting out of debt and paying it down. And it's one of the more uncomfortable things. And it is a short-term sacrifice. It really is. It sucks when you finally go, you know what? We've been living stupid. We've been living absolutely moronically stupid. And if you're sitting on $20,000 worth of debt in any form other than a mortgage on your home, you have been living stupid. And I'm sorry if that hits you in the face, but you have. I want you to sit down. If you're, if you're living on your own, and I want you to think about it. And if you're a married couple, I want you to sit down together, and I want you to figure out if you keep paying what the little piece of paper tells you to pay every month, how dad gone long are you going to pay that? How long are you going to be paying that amount before you get to where it says zero? And when you do that, I don't care if it's a student loan. I don't care if it's a credit card. I don't care if it's financing from Gomer's Auto Department down the road or whatever. When you do that, it's going to hit you in the face and it's going to suck. And it's a big thing that people don't want to do when they get into this lifestyle. But it's only a short-term sacrifice. The average American can eliminate that debt in one to three years of smart living. And there is no long-term sacrifice. If you do these things, your long-term outlook skyrockets. If you want to do it conventionally, it skyrockets. And by conventional, I mean stay at your job till you're 65, contribute to your retirement plan, whatever. If you want to do it unconventionally, and I mean something like you want a little small homestead, you want to put some solar in, and you want to retire early by building up your own systems that supply what you need, Either way, your long-term outlook just hockey sticks. You stay where you are and you stay flatlined out. And you end up retired, buying everything that you need piecemeal and hoping your money doesn't run out before, or hoping your money doesn't run out before you, it, prior to your death, right? You want to run out before your money. That's what I was trying to say. 
That's how most people live. 65, 70, 72, 74. Whenever it is they think they can retire, they retire. And then they say, well, this is how long I can afford to live. That's what financial planners are actually doing for the elderly right now. You can afford to live until you're 94. Great. <laughs> What's 95 going to be like if I make it that long? There is no long-term sacrifice, and there is no downside to living the way your grandmother would have been telling you to live if she was still here. I want you to think about your grandmother, and I want you to think about her at about the age of about 25, right? And I want you to think of her going out to her little uh, mailbox, wherever she lived at that part of her life, And I want you to think about her opening up that, that mailbox, and I want you to think about her pulling it out with a nice, shiny envelope from the Visa people. It says, Dear Grandma, you now qualify for $50,000 worth of unsecured credit. Just dial this 1-800 number, and we will set you up. Your grandma, I can tell you what she would have done. She would have carted her little butt over to the compost pile, shredded it up and threw it in there and turned it into the worms and made it into something useful. And if anybody would have asked her about who this new Visa company is, she would have said, you better not give them any money. They're stupid. They think they can give me $50,000 and I can afford to pay it back. Now, she wouldn't have understood at the time the level of slavery they would have placed into her and how she would have been paying for that until she died. So she wouldn't have understood how they were going to make money, but she would have known it was a trap. When I was a young man, my father taught me how to trap raccoons and possums and, and fox and things like that because we would trap animals for their fur and some for their meat, and we would use that to earn money. And when we started learning how to do you know, raccoons were easy, possum was easy, muskrat was easy, and we started doing fox trapping. We had this whole thing that we did where we dug a hole and we put the meat underneath the ground, and then there was a depression left, and you set the trap down into the, into the depression. And then you set this little tool over top of the trap, and you sifted dirt around it really, really lightly. And then you pulled it off, and just the pan where the animal would put its, its paw would be left, and we'd sift a little dirt over that. And I'd say, Dad, why don't we just stick the trap there? Why, why do we you know, put some meat out? You know? Why don't we make it easy for the fox to get to the meat? So we're making it where the fox has to dig to find the meat, try to get around it, what have you. And eventually, as he's trying to get that meat out, he gets trapped. Why don't we just, you know set the trap there, stick the meat on top of the ground, and when the, when the animal comes for the meat, he'll just get trapped. And my dad said, son, when you make it too easy, a fox is smart, he knows it's a trap. And that is a lesson that our grandparents knew that we've lost. We've forgotten when they make it too easy, it's a trap. There's a reason that things are made that easy in our society so that we'll willingly walk into the chains of slavery, in this case, the slavery of debt. And this is how most of society is living today. And it's why they live in a way where they go from week to week to week buying only what they can get this week and hoping they still have a job next week so they can buy next week's stuff. And all I'm saying is maybe it's time to hit the reset button on that mentality. And we wake up and we start thinking to ourselves, I want to have you ever thought, what the hell is wrong with our society today? Whenever you've asked that question, have you ever looked inward and said, am I part of this? You know, and do I, do I need to completely opt out or do I just need to, to reset back to the wisdom of, you know, 19, 1900, 1920? 
That doesn't mean we get rid of the internet, we get rid of GPSs, and we get rid of technology, but the mentality. Because I believe if we went back and took our grandparents and our great-grandparents, and we brought them into this world today, and we gave them all of the technology and opportunity that they have today, they would quickly become the wealthiest people you've ever seen in your life in the terms of true wealth, because they would want for nothing and they would need nothing. Instead, we've taken that opportunity and we've squandered it by putting our own lives into hawk. And that's why getting out of debt is part of this lifestyle. That doesn't mean you have to do it tomorrow, and that doesn't mean you have to live like a pauper, but it means you have to write your own plan. Also, you understand that it will actually bring something to you that we always pay lip service to, but very few Americans ever have, liberty and freedom. Liberty and freedom are not forms of government. They're not the ability to once every two years or once every four years go out and tick a box and decide which side of your government will throw your money away. They're just not. That's not what liberty is. Liberty and freedom are the ability to live your life on your terms and your way the way you decided you wanted your day to be today, right now, because that's what you want. And we are told we're the freest nation in the world. But how many Americans live that way today? How many Americans can wake up today and say, today I'm going to do this because it's what I want to do. And if I don't want to do something, I'm not going to do it. That's true liberty. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have a job, right? But maybe we don't keep a job we hate just because it pays the bills. Maybe we have enough empowerment now to seek out the thing that we're really meant to do. I believe if you do not follow what your heart truly tells you is right for your life, over time you destroy yourself. And this is why we have people today having heart attacks at 40 and 50. Even people in good health. I had a very good friend recently that I lost. 41 years old. Dropped over dead of a heart attack so quickly he couldn't even make a phone call with his cell phone. Wife found him in the entryway of the door. He had to have fallen over two minutes after he had just talked to her and said he felt great and just got back from what a jog. He was jogging. The guy was in great shape. He was in better shape than me. Fell over dead at 42. Now, sometimes it's a congenital heart you know, defect or something like that, but you know what's doing it to most Americans? not following who they really are and the stress that that creates in their life. If you create liberty and freedom, it does two things that we've tried to do with drugs and miserably failed at. It improves your physical and your mental health. People that live a prepping lifestyle are in better physical shape. That doesn't mean you see them bouncing around in leotards doing aerobics and acting like a gerbil. Because a human being is not a gerbil. We're not meant to run in a wheel or on a Stairmaster. We're meant to get up and move around and be out in the sun and have our bodies create vitamin D from sunlight. We're meant to, you know, to have some stress on our body, but to have it moderated, to walk up and down hills, to tend a garden, to do natural, normal human being things. See, prepping is actually starting to once again act like a human being. This is what this is what gets lost when you hear somebody try to tell you why you should do these things and all they do is give you the steps and the dangers. You should store this and this and this and you should have this in your kit and blah 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 because they're going to come get you or there's going to be a pandemic or no. How about a better case? You are a human being. You can tell cuz if you look down you got two feet and you stand erect and if you look down and put your hands out in front of you, you got hands, you got opposable thumbs. Right, and you have a mind you can think. You're deciding whether or not you agree with me right now, so you have autonomy, and you think for yourself, and you're sentient. So therefore, you know, as the, the philosopher told us, I think, therefore I am. You are a human. So how about acting like it? 
It is not human to live the way the most people live today. It's just not. Because they're living in a way counter to what they want. Now, if what you actually want is to go to an office every day, sit in a cubicle, sit behind a computer, do certain tasks, and be part of it, or that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that if it's what you want. My question is how many people doing it don't want to do it? How many people are doing things absolutely counter to who they really are? How many very successful people are? How many people that are multimillionaires are miserable? Now, do I think that the multimillionaire should just throw all his money away and go live in a hole in the ground? No. But I do think he should ask himself the question, what do I really want? And pursue that. And set up systems of resiliency and, 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 and redundancy so that if something falls down, you can keep doing it. Doesn't that sound like a more compelling reason to live what we would call a prepping lifestyle than because something someday may happen bad? This is why I do what I do. This is why I've done this for almost three years now. This is why it's my full-time occupation, because I absolutely believe that anybody that wants that in their lives can go out and get it and create it, and they will be better off, even if nothing goes wrong. When I first came up with this show, I said I had to come up with a tagline, a message. I'm a marketing person. So marketing messages are usually short and concise. And I came up with what is absolutely the worst and the best tagline ever created. It's the worst because it's too long. It's ridiculously long. It's the best because it actually conveys everything you need to know about why you'd want to listen to what I do and why you'd want to practice the things that I suggest. Helping you live the life you want if times get tough or even if they don't. Not helping you live the life they say you should have. Not helping you live the life that I say you should have. Helping you live the life that you want. You is in there twice for a reason. It all centers around you. That's why there is no long-term sacrifice. Because you wouldn't do something voluntarily that would long-term harm you if you knew that's what was happening. Not if you were really empowered in making your own choice, because that's what most Americans are doing. That's why you're going to eat that fifth bacon cheeseburger this week. Because you're miserable and you think it'll bring you temporary comfort, even though you know long-term it's going to kill you. I'm saying break that cycle. Get out of that cycle. And it will improve your physical health. And I believe that it does more for your physical health because of its mental health improvement than it does because of the activities that you do or just because you eat better or just because, you, you know, all these other things that we normally associate with physical health. Your body cannot be healthy if your mind is sick. I, I honestly believe that. You will create physical impairments in your body if your mind is not functioning the way it's supposed to. And the very first thing that we need to understand about mental health is that we're not going to fix it in a bottle of pills and we're not going to fix it by sitting on a psychologist's couch and whining to somebody that our mama didn't do what we wanted them to do. We fix our mental health very, very simply. As I said earlier, you are a human being. You again begin to behave like a human being. And guess what? your mental outlook will improve and actually become human. Does that sound like survivalism? Understand this about survivalism. Understand this about prepping. It's not just what you do in case there's a disaster. It's what you do to prevent a disaster. Being 52 years old, working yourself like a dog, finally thinking it's the end of the week, getting in your car to drive home to your wife, and before you turn the key having a mitocardial infarction, also known as a heart attack, clutching your chest, collapsing into your hot car and dying, that's a disaster. 
And it's being caused as much by what goes into our minds as what goes into our bodies. Prepping changes that. Because all of a sudden, and this is the important thing to understand, it's not just because I'm going to live healthier, I'm going to be healthier, I'm going to behave like a human, but I'm also going to do this. I'm going to put enough redundancy and resiliency in my life. And if I know, no matter what happens, the lights will stay on, food stays on the table, the roof's over the head, my family will be fine for at least three months. I just took a 400-ton weight that is existing on the back of most Americans off. And if on top of that, over a period of time through my own plan, I eliminate debt, and I'm debt-free in that instance, I'm white as a feather. And now I can function again. So when you have someone coming to you saying that maybe you need to consider this, please understand it's so much bigger than stocking food in your garage. We actually talk very little about that. That's one small component. That's like teaching somebody to drive and saying it's all about putting gas in the car. Or it's all about this is what the accelerator does, right? Driving a car has hundreds of functions that the mind has to compute and work out. Stopping, braking, turning, acceleration, deceleration, shifting gears. Your life's more complex than a car. Somebody brings that one-dimensional message to you, they're missing the point. Survival is about more than waking up and breathing tomorrow. That is the first rule. If you don't wake up and breathe tomorrow, you're dead. You fail to survive. But once you do, once you get up, it's about thriving. It's about having quality in your life. That's what prepping is really all about. It's also so easy and cheap to get started. I mean, the thing that I gave you at the beginning, it's called copy canning. At least that's what it's called by Ron Hood, one of my good friends in the industry, who, uh, who is the first person I know that I ever heard the term from. It may have come from somewhere else. Um, but, you know, buying that extra can of tuna or that extra can of wolf chili or that, whatever it is you eat it is dirt cheap. I mean, we're talking about adding maybe for the first couple months of this 10, 15 bucks to your grocery bill. And all of a sudden what happens is you start to get smart and go, hey, guess what? Since I did this, I don't need that this week. And they jack the price up on it this week. I don't have a coupon for it this week or whatever. And you don't buy that this week. You buy what you have. So you start taking opportunity buy. And what that means is you're only buying the things that are most beneficial for you to buy that week instead of everything that you need. So all of a sudden it goes from costing very little to actually saving money. By the time you have three months worth of food in your home, it allows you to only buy what you need or only what you want when it's the best time to do so. And then if you take another step, like planting a garden, sure there's a little upfront cost, but next thing you know, you're producing in the summertime anyway 40 50% of the food that you eat, or at least 40 to 50% of the vegetable matter that you eat. Now that expense is gone. It's so cheap and easy. There's so many things that we can do that have no cost. Maybe some paper and ink. Putting together a documentation package. Who would you call in a disaster? If you had to leave your home, go to Google Maps, plan three different routes away to three different places. Put that in your documentation package. Phone numbers for everybody that you would need to get in touch with. Things locally. You know, who would you call if a tree fell on your house? And the, the guy that's going right now, I got a steel chainsaw. I don't need to worry about calling no one if a tree falls on my house. You do if you're not home because you're away on business and your wife's going to run that saw. Or you do if you're at home and that tree comes through your house and kills you dead, but your wife's still there and has to get the tree off you so they can bury you. Or the tree comes through and breaks your arm and you can't run your... I mean, you don't think that, that machismo bullshit, folks. I'm sorry. You think about, what can I do for myself? And if I can't, how do I get it done? You put both in there. You put balance in there. But that's free. 
That's looking numbers up on the Internet or a phone book if you still have one. That's putting it together in a documentation package, printing it out, printing multiple copies so you have one in every vehicle and one in the house. That way if you end up split up in a disaster and you've got a frantic spouse or frantic kid on the other end of the line, you can say, open the book to page 17, look right here on that line, see that? That's where you're going to go or that's the number that you're going to call. And that puts control back into the situation. What's the cost of doing that? Almost nothing. What's the reward if it's ever needed? Astronomical. Putting together what they call a bug out bag or a 72-hour kit. Most of the stuff you need to make it for the next 72 hours, you already have. A couple days worth of clothing, some food that's storable, some things like that, flashlights, batteries, emergency radio, and the stuff you don't, you can over time accumulate. But basically you need a bag and put it all in one place and be organized about it. You know, you can get real elaborate with that stuff, but it's not about going and living off in the woods. It's about if you have to evacuate, having three days of supplies so you can get to where you're going. You know, I've done whole shows on bug out bags that you can listen to. But it's, it is that simple. We try to make everything complicated. That's what we do. And understand this. A lot of the stuff that's made complicated in the prepping survival industry is so someone can sell you something. You know, and there's things that are smart to buy, but it's not like you always have to make something complicated. A lot of stuff is very, very simple and affordable and easy to do. So at least taking these initial steps, starting to build up the pantry, having documentation, getting your flashlights, your batteries, emergency lighting together. You know, go out. They're about 10 bucks a piece. They make things look like a nightlight that also work as a flashlight. You plug them into an outlet in your wall. When the lights are out, the little nightlight thing comes on. If the power goes out, you pull them out and they have a battery and it's constantly charged. They have a flashlight. Put four of those in your house. You're out 40 bucks. But if the power goes out and everybody's distributed throughout the house, now everybody can get a hold of something that will at least light their way back. How simple is that? And there's so many other steps. And remember, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not about getting prepared tomorrow for the end of the world. It's about building a resilient lifestyle so that you can live a better life long term. So you've got time to get these things done. Just start thinking about everything that you need and use and start to build some resiliency around it. And it does eventually become a lifestyle. And I think that's a huge benefit because if it's just something you do, if it's like a diet, like I have to measure my calories or whatever, it doesn't work. You can look at millions of fat Americans and see that diets don't work. Lifestyles work. You want to look at somebody that's healthy, find somebody living a healthy lifestyle. And they can try the next fad diet or whatever the hell the magazine tells them to or what have you, and it's not going to change anything. And you know it's not. It might even have a short-term change, but that person is probably going to put five pounds on for every three pounds they lose eventually. It doesn't have a long-term effect. Prepping feels so good. Every time you take one more step toward liberty, it's like being in a dark room and, I, and you're just in a blackness and you can't see anything. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. But you've been there your whole life. You've never been anywhere else. You just grew up there. You've actually learned to function in the dark like a blind person. And whatever food you need has been shoved through a hole in a wall or whatever. And you just, for all you know, there's no way out. You've been there since you're an infant. You don't even remember anybody taking care of you. If I put a pinhole in the wall, that light that comes through at first, it hurts your eyes. But as soon as your eyes adjust to it, you crave more, and you will literally dig your fingers down to the bone to pry that hole open and get out to where that light's coming from. And every time you put a chink in that hole and it gets a little bit bigger, it's going to feel a little bit better. You're going to feel a little bit more free. That's how prepping is. As you start to build resiliency and redundancy, and you start to need others less 
And I'm not talking about your family, your friends, your community, your church, or things like that. I'm talking about the systems, right? The systems of support that are on the edge of failure all over the place. We won't go deep into that today, but just know that. There's plenty of systems of support out there that we think will always be there that are on the edge of failure. The less you need them, the less dependent you feel, the better you feel. And all of a sudden, you just start living this way. And you have more, you are more, and you act like a human being again. It's a tremendous benefit. It's also, I want you to understand this, it's not a political issue. Um, prepping is not Republican or Democrat. Now, I, I'm personally a libertarian. I bring some politics into this once in a while. Because we need to know what these, these people that are out there that are running our nation are doing. It does have an impact on our desire to do certain things that are more liberating and free, like when they start telling you you can't have a garden or something like that. And that, that's not the conspiracy theory stuff. I'm talking about simple, stupid stuff like homeowners associations. Oh, I can't have a garden, you know, or can't have a garden in the front yard. You can't grow a plant that's over four feet tall in your garden or whatever. No corn for you. And all these other things that go on out there. And there's some pretty oppressive things the government does. So occasionally I go into that, but... There's people that listen to this show all the time, and you know what? They're avowed socialists. You know, they're not not the communist socialists, more like the Norwegian socialists, which to me isn't much better. But because prepping isn't isn't political, it's not. You're conservative, so you're going to prep, and you're liberal, so you're not going to. I would say that there's probably more of a bend toward people that are more toward the conservative side of things, at least economically. Than, than, than the liberal side, but that's just because the, the mentality of being self-reliant, independent is stronger in that group. But I believe it's innately human. It's only marketing by mass media and the mass hysteria of society that has, has drowned that out. Any human being, regardless of their political stripes, is going to feel better with greater independence. So it's not political. So if you think you have to like switch your party affiliation or something, don't bother. By the time you uh, you get through building your life this way, you'll probably be a political atheist anyway. You won't trust any of them anymore. You won't care what initials after their name. You'll care what they've done. And I think that's uh, that's a pretty smart way to be. But if you want to stay a totally affiliated one side or the other, go ahead. It has nothing to do with being prepared if you lose your job. It has nothing to do with being prepared if there's a natural disaster. It has nothing to do with being able to retire at a sane age instead of when you're really, really old. It has nothing to do with being able to provide for yourself versus have somebody else provide for you. That's what prepping is really all about. There's absolutely no need to believe in any conspiracy theories to be a good, solid, modern survivalist. In fact, in many instances, if you truly believe in some of the out there, woo, way out there conspiracy theories, it's actually quite detrimental to your prepping. Because you'll focus on the bunker mentality versus a total lifestyle mentality, and you'll have failures. What happens with the conspiracy theorists is they become fixated on an event or a date. Y2K was a perfect example. And then they go berserk. They buy generators with no gasoline. They buy long-term storage food they've never tried. And they stock their garage full because they're going to be ready. And then the date comes and the date passes and then they feel like a fool. And then you and I go out and buy their stuff on eBay and Craigslist. Dirt cheap. Because they didn't know why they were doing what they were doing. So I'm not saying that I don't believe in any of the, the conspiracy theories out there. I think there's some that have actually been proven true. I think there's some that are just completely flipping nuts. And, and my, my belief is always that when I find a person... Uh, that, uh, that doesn't believe anything 
that comes out of alternative news sources, alternative media sources, they're closed-minded. And when I find someone that, that believes everything that comes out of there, they're also closed-minded. Uh, the open-minded person takes the information in and assesses it and makes a judgment for themselves. And since prepping is all about you, making your plan for yourself, your way, and your life, then that's the way you need to bring information in and make decisions based on. And if you choose to go off to one extreme or the other, that's fine. But all I'm saying to you is you don't have to believe in black helicopters to think it's a good idea to be able to feed yourself for more than a week. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there that people that live this lifestyle were all black helicopter tinfoil hat freaks, and we're not. Most of us are normal people that you would stand right next to in the grocery store and not even notice anything different, except maybe if we're at a certain stage of supplying or resupplying, our cart's a little more full than yours. And you'd probably just think they have a lot of kids. That's, that's who we are. We're normal, everyday people. In fact, I think that we're the normal ones. And that's why I think most of us don't buy into every single thing that the conspiracy theorist throws up. just wanted to put that in there during this episode, that it's not necessary or even advantageous that you're that type of person. Next is, and the last thing is, the primary rule is you to, for you to do what you think is best. And I want to ask you, how many places in society do we hear that message today? How many places do you go into that the government or the employer or your fellow man says, I think you should do what you think is the best thing for you? Those words are so simple. They're so true. They make so much sense, but we almost never hear them anymore. I've made it the guiding principle of what I do. No matter what I say, No matter what I advise you, no matter what I talk about, whether it's small livestock or homesteading or food storage or disaster preparedness or, or politics or whatever, in the end, I always say, I've given you a bunch of information. I've given you a bunch of other sources of information. Go out and take your information that you've gotten from me and get other information. Evaluate how it fits into your lifestyle and do what you think is right for yourself and do what you think is right for your family. Doesn't sound like hysteria, does it? Because it's not. Because it's what we all should be doing. And the reason so many people listen to what I do every day now is because in your heart you know that is true. Because it has to be true. Because it gives you the freedom to completely disagree with 90% of what I've given you and take 10% that you do agree with it, harness it, and fit it into your lifestyle, your way, and make your life better. And that's something very few people are willing to do. And I'll tell you what it is. Most people don't have enough faith in their fellow man. They don't, they don't believe that the other person is capable of actually making decisions for themselves. Well, if you say you believe in true liberty and freedom, you have to think that way. That's the very nature of liberty. I can't say that we're free, but I want you to do things the way I think you should do them. That, that's slavery. If you owe a man, you're his slave. That's why you stay out of debt. If you do everything someone else tells you to, you might as well be their slave. You might as well just move into a little shack outside of their house and say, what do you want me to do today? You have to think for yourself. I get emails all the time. Jack, I love your show. I don't agree with everything you say. And every time I see that, I say, thank God. Because I don't want anybody to agree with everything I say. I say, too many, too many things. I talk for an hour a day, five days a week. You better find something you disagree with. And when I get one that says, I agree with everything you say, it scares the hell out of me. I'm like, think for yourself. You get mad, that's fine. I don't care if you're mad at what I said. I care that you harness it and you do what's right for yourself. 
So if you are a normal member of the audience, I hope today's show was good for you. I bet it was. I bet it, it was things that you needed to hear and needed to be able to tell other people. If you're a new person, especially if you're somebody that was, was given this episode by somebody else, check out the survivalpodcast.com. Go back to that person. Ask them what they're doing in their lives. And understand, if they say, I'm doing X, Y, and Z, and you think X is cool and Z is cool, but you don't like Y, you don't have to do Y. Now, once you do X and Z, you may go back and go, hmm, Y makes sense. Or you may go, I don't want Y, I want C. And it's all okay. The person that shares this information with you doesn't want you to live the way they live like a clone. They just want you to take personal responsibility for your life and for people around you. They want to know, they want to feel safe and secure in their own hearts that if something goes wrong, yes, they'll help you, but you'll also be able to take care of yourself and help yourself and help others as well. They want, if they're in the front of that line helping others, they don't want you somewhere in the, in the middle or the back of the line. They want you standing at their side. And there's no place that could be more true than if you are the spouse of someone you share this with you. If you are the husband or the wife and your, 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 your spouse sat down with you and said, Honey, I want you to listen to this guy. He's a little out there on some things, but boy, he can make a case for this. If your spouse asked you to do this, it might be the most important thing you can do for yourself and for them. And it might be the most important thing you can do for your marriage. If your kids ask you to do this, if you're an older person and, and, and you, you think you got, the kids have powdered butt syndrome, which means if you've powdered their butt, you don't want to listen to them, well, listen to me. If your parents gave this to you and you're thinking, I just want to go live my freaking life my way, listen to me. I'm telling you to do that. I'm just telling you to be smart about it. I'm telling you to think about it. I'm telling you there are things in this world, there are things in this life that go wrong. But we don't have to fall down just because the things around us do. We can have the world crumble around us, and we can even get knocked down. But if we're prepared, not only do we get back up, we're the people that thrive in those situations. That can be you, or you can let yourself still be pushed along by the ebbs and tides of life. I'm saying get in the boat, fire up the motor, and go where you want. And with that, this is the Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough before you can do it.